You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Don Guerra. And I'm Nikki Stewart-Ingersoll. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, November 1st, 2021. Later in the program, WFHB News speaks with Brett Voorhees, who was recently re-elected as the president of the Indiana AFL-CIO, the largest federation of unions in the United States. More coming up in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro speaks with Julia Vaughn, policy director for Common Cause Indiana, about how state lawmakers draw legislative maps every 10 years. But first, your daily headlines. At the Monroe County Community School Corporation board meeting on October 26th, the board received pleas from parents to ensure the safety of their children from guns at schools after an airsoft gun was reported at Bloomington High School sending the school into lockdown. During public comment, a concerned mother spoke at the meeting about this being the second lockdown at Bloomington South in the last two months. This is a picture of my daughter about noon on October 15th, after she tried to stay at school after the gun incident and was not able to do it. She drove to my work and slept in my office because she was too fearful to go home and be alone. This girl, along with her entire school, had to go into lockdown today. This was written October 15th. A child brought a gun into the school today. This is the second kid to bring a gun into Bloomington High School South in just over two weeks. I'm here to tell you that no child should ever have to experience this amount of trauma. No child, no educator should ever feel unsafe or to have to learn how to protect their students from such actions. This is the text message that I, like so many other parents, received from my daughter. Mom, 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 we're going into lockdown. Mom, something is happening in the hallway. Mom, I'm scared. This is my response. You're okay. Listen to your teacher and do exactly what they tell you. Then I sent an immediate next response that said, Put your phone on silent. Do you know why I wanted her phone on silent? At this point, I know that my daughter is in lockdown and someone in the school is a threat. I did not want her phone to ding, chime, ring, or anything else. I didn't want her to become the target. I want to know, as a parent, how this happened. I want to know how these guns are getting into our schools. And I want to know how you intend to prevent this from ever happening again. Another mother spoke on behalf of her son who hasn't gone back to school since the lockdown. Commenters called for metal detectors at school entrances and clear backpacks. One parent, Mia Douglas, 
said that there is a lack of communication between the school and the parents about how the school corporation plans to ensure the safety of the students moving forward. The next MCCSC school board meeting will be held on November 16th. On October 27th at the Monroe County Commissioner's Meeting, Assistant Director of Parks and Recreation John Robertson presented a service agreement with Trailhead Labs for the purchase of a software called Outer Spatial. According to Robertson, this program would create interactive maps for parks and trails for county residents. So Outer Spatial is um, what started as a mobile application, but is now a mobile and web-based application um, that will allow us, um, the Parks Department, also the county, um, to do a lot more uh, with our, our trails and parks and incorporate that into community engagement. So um, the app more or less allows us to provide interactive maps of both the parks and trails. Um, one of the benefits to having an app, um, especially on trails, um, which for us are, you know, kind of outside of the uh, city limits, maybe this, the cell phone reception somewhat limited. Um, you don't need cell phone reception in order to use the app itself. So you've got access to uh, maps of the trails, trailheads, parks, things like that. Um, without needing reception. So that's a big benefit. Um, through this app, we're also able to uh, push things like brochures, facility information, um, program information, and then events as well. He also noted that out of the $15,000 cost, $10,000 would be funded through a Duke Energy Foundation grant the county has received. Commissioner Lee Jones supported the program, saying it would make the parks and trails more accessible to the public. The commissioners voted to approve funding for Outer Spatial unanimously. Board of Health Director Penny Caudill updated the commissioners on the Board of Health's recommendation to extend the countywide COVID-19 health regulation. That goal was to have cases per 100,000 drop below 50 and to be in a blue advisory. So we were not there as we had hoped. And I mentioned to you this morning, we're still not quite there. So the Board of Health wants to get there. And that is all based on the CDC's recommendation that communities that have a substantial or high level of community spread should be masking when indoors in public places, regardless of their vaccination status. So that's why this went into effect. Uh, we're requesting that it be extended until we reach the goal. Uh, they did not put an end date on it because we're pretty, we believe, we hope that we're pretty close to that. Again, as, as I said earlier, who knows? No crystal ball here. But we hope that we will be there soon. Commissioner Penny Giffen supported the extension of the mask mandate. She highlighted how the regulations have supported the community's economy as well. Um, we've heard from businesses who say that they appreciate having the mask uh, sort of mandate in place. It keeps their employees on the job. And without that, um, things will shut down again. It's just everybody is just working at sort of at the edge. And I've also talked with people in other counties who actually come here to shop because they feel safer. So um, yeah, it's a boost to the business. Board of Health Director Penny Caudill shared that she has talked to surrounding counties' health departments who would like to have a mask mandate in place, but they do not have the support from elected officials. 
The board voted unanimously to approve the COVID-19 health regulation extension. The next commissioner's meeting will be held on November 3rd. On October 25th at the Bloomington Utilities Service Board meeting, Vice Provost for External Relations for IU Bloomington, Kirk White, asked how long the backup generator would run if the city ever ran into a power problem so the city can be ready for things like blizzards. We ought to have a range. Maybe, Vic, it it would be a good idea to just in an upcoming meeting review of the board, uh, what what our capacity is at at the individual locations. In other words, how far, how long we can run if we've got a power disruption. Director of Utilities Vic Kelson said he can get that information for the board in the future. The next board meeting will be on November 8th. Now it's time for your future reports. Up first, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro speaks with Julia Vaughn, Policy Director for Common Cause Indiana, about how state lawmakers draw legislative maps every 10 years. We turn to Shapiro for more. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of gerrymandering? Multicolored maps split along complex borders? Confusion? Well, a better way might be to think of gerrymandering as a puzzle in and of itself. If you've ever put together a puzzle, you may have done so with the end goal being that a picture is formed amongst the pieces. Similarly, this desire to form a picture with pieces could be stated as a goal for powerful individuals at the state and congressional levels determining the districts for elections following the national census, which is taken every 10 years. However, the pieces that these leaders put together aren't just for enjoyment. Instead, determining the borders for where a certain population of a state resides either allows for a puzzle with a competitive and equal picture of electoral practice, or such a process can create one-sided races and leaders. Such a strategy is known as gerrymandering, wherein state and local governments will increase or decrease the population size of a certain area of the state in order to limit the impact of that area's votes in elections. In an interview with WFHB News, Julia Vaughn, policy director for the Indiana branch of Common Cause, an organization seeking to eliminate gerrymandering from state elections, explained how unfair redistricting impacts elections, in particular, voter turnout in them. There are a lot of different reasons for low turnout here in Indiana, but I think one of the most basic and fundamental ones is unfair districts, districts that were drawn to Uh, heavily favor candidates from one party or the other, and particularly at the congressional level. Those are top-of-the-ticket, high-profile races. And unfortunately, over the past decade here in Indiana, we have had only three congressional races that were decided by less than 10 percentage points. Most of these races are blowouts. We know weeks before Election Day who the winner is likely going to be. However, Vaughn went on to mention that this has not always been the case. We have shown in those rare instances where our votes really matter. I mean, I'm thinking back to the 
Democratic presidential primary in 2008, where Indiana was one of the states that really decided who that candidate was going to be. Was it going to be Hillary Clinton? Was it going to be Barack Obama? And Hoosiers, we knew we are going to be among the people who make this decision and determine who the final candidate will be. So we had great turnout that year. And again, but the past decade, when maps were drawn in 2011 by only one party inside the General Assembly, then we've seen that competition really squelched. Following the 2008 victory of President Barack Obama and Democratic victories in the House and Senate that same year, Republicans were down on their luck and needed a spark to reignite their voice in the political spectrum. This philosophy laid the groundwork for the 2011 midterms, the re-envisioning of gerrymandering, and the technological customization of the modern voter, which Vaughn recounted. It used to be you could recognize a gerrymander. You know, we've all come to recognize a gerrymandered district as one that is crazy shape that meanders all over the place. Well, technology really gained a foothold in 2011, and, and Republicans recognized that it's it's easy to draw districts that look regular shape, that, you know, are not crazy, meandering, salamander-shaped districts, but they can still have the same impact. And they had the ability, not only with using this GIS software that, that allowed them this more sophisticated approach to gerrymandering, but they're also able to layer on top of the uh, census data all types of other consumer data. You know, what magazines we subscribe to, what organizations we belong to. So they're really able to profile voters and predict pretty accurately how we're going to vote. So the ability to do that back in 2011, Republicans controlled the majority of state houses. They had this sophisticated new mapping technology that they could layer on top all of this demographic and and consumer data. So they were able to really draw much more precise and efficient gerrymanders that didn't exactly look like gerrymanders, especially here in states like Indiana. You know, the the problem is that we give this important responsibility of drawing new districts to the wrong group of people, the folks who are most self-interested in misusing the process to create a political gain. So that's why my organization has been working since 2011 to put a different system in place. So what will it take to arrange this abstract political puzzle into one of coherence and satisfaction to those seeking a clear picture of national government? Well, to start discussion, Vaughn provides her own view of a more perfect process. We need to follow the lead of states like Michigan, like Arizona, like California, who have put citizens in charge of this process. You know, we need an independent citizens commission to take charge of drawing the lines, because that's the only way we're going to have a balanced perspective and remove that inherent conflict of interest that exists when you allow politicians to draw the lines. Because what ends up happening under that kind of scenario is politicians choose their voters through redistricting rather than voters choosing their politicians on election day. For WFHB News, I'm Abe Shapiro. Live and learn.
Brett Voorhees recently won the third election as president of the Indiana American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations, or AFL-CIO. The re-election for another four-year term means that Voorhees will continue to preside over 400 labor unions across Indiana, made up of about 300,000 members. Upon re-election, Voorhees said the group will continue to fight for better wages and working conditions. On May 5th of this year, we spoke with Voorhees on the issue of workplace fatalities in Indiana. During today's broadcast, we revisit that conversation. So Brett Voorhees, president of the Indiana AFL-CIO, thank you for coming on to the WFHB Local News. You're very welcome, and thank you for having me. So according to a report conducted by the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations, 146 Indiana residents were killed on the job in 2019. In addition, Indiana's job fatality rate is 4.7 per 100,000 residents, higher than the national rate of 3.5 per 100,000 people. So why do you presume Indiana's job fatality rate is higher than the national average? Well, I think that, I mean, one of the biggest things that, that we're lacking in Indiana, and, and this is something that I've been actually talking about for uh, the past several years now, is is actually the lack of inspectors um, throughout um, the state of Indiana from, from IOSA. Um, I mean, it's, it's just insane um, on how many, uh, how, how few inspectors we have um, that can actually go out and inspect whether it's um, um, somebody, you know, just getting hurt on the job or death on the job or just going out and, and doing a, um, a, a random inspection, um, making sure that, you know, your workplaces are, are safety. Um, we in the unions, we're, we're, we're very fortunate that most of our, um, our locals have, um, have safety committees um, that work together with management and the, um, and the, the, uh, the union members um, to where they work on, you know, safety issues together. Um, but unfortunately, they not all not all um, uh, workplaces have that. Absolutely, and and I want to get into the lack of oversight in a moment. But before we dive into that, with the COVID nineteen pandemic and an increase of risk by working, you know, in person jobs, why is it so important now more than ever for employers to protect their workers? Well, I mean, you know, everything from it just adds on. It adds on to um, to everything, every other aspect of safety on the job. I mean, now everything from training for um, whether it be contact tracing, um, whether it be um, you know uh, uh, making sure that they uh, provide the proper PPE um, equipment for the workers, and so on. Um, unfortunately, our our general assembly um, just passed legislation that that makes it a lot harder for workers to be protected in their workplace by not being able to, um, I guess you could use the word sue or whatever, going after the, um, the employer after, con- you know, contracting the, uh, the COVID-19 on the job. So it seems like we're going downhill rather than, than uphill. Now, according to the AFL-CIO report, which is based on numbers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the death rate for workers of color is increasing. So would you touch on the disproportionate impact of workplace fatalities in both the black and Latino communities? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's actually it's, it's not just in, in Indiana, but obviously it's 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 that way throughout the, the entire country. 
And unfortunately, that's, you know, the way the statistics and the numbers are actually landing. I mean, for Latinos, the fatality rate was, what, 14% in, in 2018, which is, is the highest it's been since, since 2008. And a lot of that is due to the, the, the past administration we've had, you know, that occupied the, the, uh, the White House. So um, now we have somebody in there that's actually a full-fledged union member with uh, or not obviously we've got President Biden, but we've actually got a, a new labor commissioner of, with uh, Marty Walsh. He's a full-fledged union member um, that hopefully will make things different on, on OSHA in general throughout the nation. And uh, so the statistics like for people of color, those numbers will go down instead of increase. Now, let's talk about people over the age of 65. How is this age demographic more likely to die on the job compared to other age demographics? Um, a lot of them, I mean, once you get older, obviously, some get less healthy, um, whether it be, you know, heart conditions or, or you know, other conditions that, that you, you know, would have to work with while you're, while you're on the job. It's unfortunate getting old, but unfortunately, that's, that's, that is what happens. I mean, you know, it's, what is it, three times the risk of, of dying on the job um, at, at over the age of 65. So, um, and but that's something that you know the OSHA needs to look more into. I mean, we need to look more into, um, you know, how do we decrease that? Um, not only for the people of color, but for for you know people of age as well. I mean, is there certain new trainings, new programs, things like that? It just seems like you know OSHA's been stagnant, and um, and it's, it's more about you know trying to cut the workforce. When I say the workforce, I'm talking about the government workforce and and less workforce trainers and everything on the job throughout the nation, being able to you know, make sure that our workplaces are safe. Now, I know we had talked about this a little bit, um, but I wanted to really hit it on the nose here. So last but not least, I wanted to dive into the root cause of the increase of workplace fatalities. OSHA, which is meant to ensure safe working conditions, is the most understaffed since the creation of the agency in 1970. So how does this lack of oversight attribute ultimately to an increased amount of deaths in the workplace? Yes, because unfortunately we've got we've got companies out there, workplaces out there with um, that unfortunately, whether it be the management or the company owners, we have bad apples that aren't following the right guidelines that IOSHA or OSHA actually puts forth out there for the job. They'll do anything they can to save a dollar and skate by and and there's no oversight or protection over it. You got the non-union workforce out there with no protection from their union looking over the safety on the job. And then, you know, back again to the lack of inspectors that, that we have um, in the state of Indiana. I mean, it'll take it would take 202 years to inspect every workplace in Indiana at the rate we're going now with only 38 inspectors throughout the state of Indiana. So before we part ways, in an ideal world, what is the best case scenario for employer oversight, regulatory measures to prevent deaths like this from happening in a work environment? I think that what needs to happen is, is we need to, well, obviously there, there needs to be, you know, more inspectors um, out there spending more time dropping by randomly or whatever the case may be. Um, on work sites, making sure that work sites are protected. A number of the folks that lost their, their life on the job in Indiana, failed to mention earlier, was was road construction, something that we've tried at the legislature to get through as well, whether it be more police or whether it be different uh, signage or whatever the case may be. We've worked on every avenue possible to try and slow people down on workplaces. But unfortunately, that again, the legislature never took anything up and it shot us down on on those issues. So uh, I, what needs to be done is they just need, they need to work more with us, um, more with the workers, 
you know, involve the workers in, in, you know, what needs to be or what should be safe in your workplace, like we do with our union committees. That needs to be, you know, government mandated throughout the rest of the state, you know, for, for all employers. Well, Brett Voorhees, president of the Indiana AFL-CIO, thank you so much for coming on to the WFHB Local News. Thank you, Kate. I appreciate it. And anytime, I'm always, always happy to come on. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noelle Herhusky schneider in partnership with CATS Community Access Television Services. Our features were produced by Abe Shapiro and Cade Young. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. Stay tuned for With Good Reason, coming up next on WFHB. WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 